Hello and welcome to the Green Canary. Today on the show, we're going to be talking about, you guessed it, the energy crisis. But we promise we're going to make it interesting. We've been talking about it for a couple of weeks. The whole of Australia has, probably all sick of it, but we have someone coming on the show who's going to make sense of it, who's going to explain why it happened, where we go from here, importantly, where we don't go from here, and a whole lot more. And we're also going to speak about Western Australia's energy transition. A bunch of renewables are going to come into play there. We're going to talk about electric vehicles in New South Wales, which the NSW govd has uh, made a whole lot easier to get a hold of, or, or will be, in tomorrow's budget. And we're going to talk about worms that are living off polystyrene. This is not a science fiction podcast. It sounds like one, but this is your Green Canary podcast. I'm Ant Sharwood. I'm sitting opposite Elfie Scott, as always. And Elfie, have you been eating any polystyrene this week? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, heaps, actually. It's most of my diet. Uh, How's your weekend been? I saw that you went to the snow. Yes, I went to the snow uh, or the ice as, as it was. It was a little bit frozen down there, but um, oh, so nice to get away. Uh, saw lots of wildlife, which always makes me happy. I oh, saw really? a, a dusky antechinus. I don't even know how to say I'm it. I'm sorry, what is that? AKA marsupial mouse, little thing, little oh. thing scurrying between the boulders, and a native rat. I think it was a broad tooth rat also scurrying between the boulders. Someone asked me, "Have you been carrying cheese around with you on the slopes, Ant? <laughs> because all these little um, mouse-like creatures were following me." But no, I was just carrying, you know, Snickers bars in 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 the pocket for the energy which you need when oh, you're on the slope. I love that. Mm. That's such a good story. Mm, it was it was good fun, and you know. Speaking of good stories, let's let's kick off with one. We're normally kicking off with doom and gloom, Elfie. What do you got for us? Yeah, it is rare for us, isn't it, to have mm. an optimistic story. But basically this week, the New South Wales government have committed $38 million to building more charging sites for electric vehicles to try and boost uptake in the state. They're trying to ensure that by 2030, half of all new car sales are electric. So basically this cash is going towards upgrading places like apartment buildings and some roadside stops with charging stations. Uh, this is on top of benefits that already exist like a $3,000 rebate and stamp duty waivers for people buying electric vehicles. But yeah, it's just fantastic news. And honestly, I am really excited to see it. We talk a lot about electric vehicles on this podcast. So it's always nice to see new incentives being rolled out by governments. Absolutely. And that would be uh, Matt Keane, the New South Wales treasurer who's behind most of this. He is, uh, you know, very much in favour of uh, renewables and uh, EVs and all that sort of thing. So well, well played, Matt Keane. And, uh, you know, I understand that you are pretty keen, not Matt Keen, but you yourself (laughs) are are embarking on an electric vehicle kind of transition. Tell us about that. Well, actually, I guess you could say it's literally a transition Mm because I'm getting a hybrid vehicle. Ah. But... Yeah, I mean, I've put in the order for my hybrid Toyota Corolla. This is not a sponsored ad. God, I wish it was because cars (laughs) are expensive. But, you know, it's interesting to see, especially now, um, you know, we've heard so much about how difficult it is to get things shipped in. And I ordered this car, I think, five months ago. And I think it's probably still about four months off. So, yeah, it's interesting to see in firsthand the way that cars are coming into Australia and how difficult it is to get your hands on a new vehicle right now. Yeah, your your problem is is everybody's problem and it's sort of society's problem, isn't it? Um, especially with electric vehicles, just even before COVID and supply chain issues. There was a slowness. New South Wales is now doing its part to accelerate that. Let's mm-hmm. hope it gets here soon. 
Tell you who else is accelerating something. That would be Western Australia. Um, now, story two. Western Australia uh, is uh, putting all sorts of uh, energy towards renewables, isn't it? The state has actually announced this week, uh, Mark McGowan announced that by the end of 2030, it would be bye-bye to its uh, state-run coal-fired plants, which is terrific. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. So Western Australia has, I believe, two state-run coal-fired power plants, and they we knew earlier that actually they had committed to retiring parts of their biggest station. But now with this announcement, they've come through and said that they're going to close both of those massive plants. Uh, They're calling it an orderly transition to renewable energy, which I think is a nice way to put it. Uh, And to fill the gap that's being left by those two power stations, they're putting an extra $3.8 billion towards a green-powered infrastructure, basically meaning that they have to upgrade that grid, uh, mostly in the state's southwest, to try and get everybody prepared for renewables. Uh, But you had an interesting fact about the (laughs) town that coal plants are based in in WA, didn't you? I'm always interested in the names of things, Elfie. And, and you know, in WA, the, the, the coal is all down in the southwest near a town called Collie. Mm. So that made me think, was Collie named after the colliery, you know, nearby? <laughs> it's only two letters tacked onto the end. Maybe they just named the town after the industry. But no, they didn't. It was named after a Scottish surgeon, uh, Andrew, I think he was, Collie. I'm just interested in things like that. <laughs> Nomenclature. There's today's absolutely unpronounceable word of the day. Nomenclature. <laughs> how, how a thing got its name. But um, it's good news that WA is is doing that. And look, they've already got tremendous amounts of um, solar over there. What was Huge What was amounts. that stat that you dug up about, about the uh, amount of solar that they put in every year? Something like the equivalent of a state-run coal-fired power station is being added in solar panels every year to WA's rooftops. The uptake is massive. Uh, So, yeah, it's one. this is one of the biggest infrastructure investments the state has ever seen, and it's going to try and support all of that rooftop solar as well as, I'm sure, more state-run uh, renewable energy sources. But it's a fantastic story. Actually, we've started off with two positive stories that literally never happens. And our interview is pretty chirpy as well. Let's go there. Let's, let's talk to Tim Buckley. Now, I spoke to Tim earlier today. We threw it in the can. I don't want to uh, introduce it too much more, but... Just suffice to say, Tim is an absolute energy guru. Let's roll it. We've had an energy crisis last week, and there are now calls to develop greenfield gas sites uh, from Resources Minister Madeline King as one of the solutions to that. We'll get into uh, that call in a moment, but I'd like to introduce this week's guest. We have Tim Buckley, he is an he is an all round energy guru, uh, but he is actually the director of climate energy finance. How are you, Tim? G'day, Anthony. Good to see you again, and uh, I'm I'm good, although things are moving at uh, a huge pace of knots. I bet they are. So we really appreciate your time. Look for the dummies in the room, which is usually me. Um, can you please give us the the briefest overview possible of last week's energy crisis? Uh, I know that we had all sorts of problems with where we actually saw energy operators withdrawing capacity from the market because uh, it seems like they couldn't make a dollar. Uh, I'm not sure if it was their fault or IEMO's fault, but you you're the expert. 
what happened last week? Last week is the culmination of nine years of energy policy and climate policy chaos from the previous government under Angus Taylor. So the ALP has hit the road running, but they inherited a budget crisis, a energy crisis and a climate crisis all within their first three weeks of getting into the chair. So at the end of the day, I'm not blaming them. They have to deal with it. But what we do have to do is separate out what is the immediate need and what's the long-term need. So the immediate need, we have an energy crisis on the East Coast, not the West Coast. The West Coast has a gas reservation. They have use of public gas for public use in, a, in, a, in a Western Australia. Eastern Australia has an absolute policy failure. We don't have control of our own public resources. We have let a multinational gas cartel come in, hoover up all of the gas out of the East Coast of Australia, export the majority of that and leave the East Coast the dregs. So we've moved to export price parity and beyond. Now, when the international gas price goes up tenfold and we're at export parity, we have an energy crisis on our hand. It's an energy affordability crisis as the main thing. Like there is gas there. It's just, are we willing to pay export parity or beyond, meaning 10 times what we were paying two years ago. But that was then coupled with the absolute um, outcome of Angus Taylor's inertia and stupidity. We have a coal plant that is both really expensive and really unreliable because it's at the end of its useful life. And so we had a situation where three gigawatts of our coal fleet was offline in the middle of winter, in the middle of a cold start to winter and peak demand. And so as a result, record high gas prices meant that the gas power generators weren't willing to turn on except at exceptionally high prices. And then the coal fleet couldn't turn on because it's broken. And so in the middle of that, there wasn't enough for renewable energy to hold the, hold the market alive. And so AEMO did an unprecedented intervention. They suspended the market. They suspended the price and just said, look, you have to operate. And as you said, some of the generators called their bluff, played brinksmanship and actually turned off saying, oh, if you put a cap on our price, we're not going to be able to make money. So therefore we'll turn off eventually AEMO had to step in and say, no, you actually are an essential service. You have an obligation to perform when we tell you to. You can worry about making profits the rest of the time, but when we have a crisis, you will play ball or we'll get the bloody big stick out. And they got the big stick out because the generators, as for-profit companies tend to do, game the system. Yes, and um, I, I, I wasn't really meaning to ask you this, but I can't resist. What, what must the scene have been like uh, at some of those generators when they were told, provide a bloody service, not at a profit, just for a few days to keep Australia running? Uh, it must have been quite incredible. Oh, a real shock that the, uh, the vested interest in our fossil fuel industry are actually going to have to do the right thing by Australia. They've never had that situation in the last decade. Yeah, a real shock, a shock to the system. And therefore, it did require an unprecedented response from the government, from the ESB, um, and the, uh, sorry, not the ESB, the AER, the Australian Energy Regulator, stepped in and warned them, we'll get the stick out. They ignored them. Okay, as they tend to do. And then AEMO intervened in an unprecedented way. Now, I've been pushing for Jim Chalmers, the, the, the new treasurer of Australia, to get an even bigger stick out 
at the end of the day, this fossil fuel mafia is actually using Australia's assets for their own private tax, pay, um, tax haven based gains. They rorted the, the PRRT, they've rorted the corporate tax system, and now they're screwing everyone on the east coast of Australia. So I've been shouting windfall gains, war profiteering. How about you get the fiscal? stick out because that will really pull them into line. I mean, these multinationals pay next to no, I, I just hesitated there. I hear that uh, Glencore actually paid some cash tax in the last 12 <laughs> months. Now, that'll be a first in the last decade, but BP, Shell, Exxon, Chevron, Glencore, all of these sort of companies, Peabody, actually need to pay some corporate tax. I think we have an absolute um, regulatory capture of our government by these fossil fuel mafia. We need donation reform, but ultimately we also need to level the playing field. We can't have domestic companies like Woodside, ironically, BHB and Rio, they're all paying tax in Australia. They benefit from the franking system that Paul Keating brought in 20, 30 years ago, but these foreign multinationals have no incentive to pay tax. And so we've got a situation, they're making windfall gains they're paying next to no royalties, they're paying no corporate tax, and we, 22 million Australians, can't afford to turn the heaters on. That is a fiscal crisis on top of an energy crisis, on top of a climate crisis. So I'm hoping Anthony Albanese and his team do not blink that they actually hold these guys to account because at the end of the day, we've been game to buggery for a decade. It's time to solve some of the fiscal crisis and the energy crisis without making the climate crisis worse. Uh, Tim, that is an outstanding uh, summary and an impassioned one. And um, I don't mind some of the verbs you use like screwed and things like that either. Uh, seems to me uh, on the weekend, I took some winter boots out of the cupboard and uh, they had some knots in the laces that took me about half an hour. I have never seen a more knotted, difficult lace, but those boots, are not even close, uh, according to your analysis, of, of being an analogy for the energy system. Can we untie it? Yeah, it's a good question. We can. And what I'll point to is that Chris Bowen and Anthony Albanese took to the election an 82% renewables by 2030 target. I'm going to just ignore the 43%. Like the, that's just pathetically weak. But the 82% renewables by 2030 is actually really ambitious, particularly when you know they also took the safeguard mechanism to the election and you've got the opportunity of a lifetime in terms of electric vehicles to remove all of our oil imports and electrification of everything so we can start to remove fossil gas, methane gas from our houses. I mean, it, just a carcinogenic in our houses, so causing asthma, causing all sorts of uh, problems health-wise. And so at the end of the day, 50 years of the natural gas lobby bullshitting us about the uh, the health merits of pumping methane gas into our closed houses. But, anyway, but, I, but I remember the ads, Tim. I remember the old ads, the living flame, natural gas, you know, the, 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 the I, dancing ballet dancers imitating the blue flame. It was Correct. We should not call it natural gas. Let's call it what it is, methane gas or fossil gas. And uh, at the end of the day, it's a health problem. It's a climate crisis. So I, I do think we need to be really careful. And the Albanese government, having just given them a compliment, we also need to be careful. They need to be really careful. Just today, we've seen the um, ESB come out with a new capacity mechanism. Now, it's supposedly new, but it was designed by Angus Taylor. 
It was implemented, it was designed by people that worked for Angus Taylor and therefore, in my view, are entirely captured by the LMP way of thinking. So the last thing I want to see is Chris Bowen kick an own goal by implementing in haste a policy designed to prolong and subsidise yet more fossil fuel capacity. It's just wrong. We can't give these buggers any more subsidies. They need to start paying some taxes, start paying a fair share of royalties, start paying a carbon price at some point. Uh, yet now, what's Chris Bowen just had put on the table thanks to the ESB? A capacity mechanism. So now, explain the capacity me mechanism really, really briefly for us. Sure. It's meant to help firm up ever higher penetration of renewable energies. It's meant to bring in reserve capacity into the system so that when the wind's not blowing, when the sun's not shining, the old mantra that we've actually still got sufficient capacity. Now, that makes sense, but subsidising existing gas and existing coal does nothing to bring in new capacity. So what the ESB has failed to disclose to Chris Bowen in clear English is that this is the least preferred mechanism that was actually put forward by the subcommittee that spent a year evaluating this. The ESB has actually been captured by the uh, Angus Taylor Mafia. Uh, I'm saying the ESB, also the Australian Energy Market Commission, the Australian Energy Regulator, at the end of the day, one, two, or all three of them, because they're all the same people, whether it's Claire Savage or Anne Collier, we need to be really careful. These are appointments from Angus Taylor. They have to understand that the government has a clear climate objective, and that needs to be made explicit before any new policy initiative is brought in. Now, COAG made that clear only a week ago, two weeks ago. They said, we want to only bring in firming capacity that is zero emissions. Now, what did the ESB do? Totally ignored it. They totally ignored it and they introduced what Angus Taylor wanted. So we've still got the ghosts of Angus Taylor haunting our energy, climate and fiscal crises that he left us. And it seems that we have the ghost of Angus Taylor to some extent infecting uh, Resources Minister Madeline King's thinking. She's, hey, uh, let's let's get Santos. Let's let's talk about the Narrabri gas project um, up up in the Pilliga region. And I think even the title Narrabri gas project is is um, a bit of a cover because it's not the Narrabri gas project. Narrabri is the nearest town. It's the Pilliga gas project. It's going to be drilled into the Great Artesian Basin under the priceless dryland forest, the Pilliga. It's the Pilliga gas project that Santos is doing, that Madeleine King is championing this week. Now, I believe you said last week, not only does it ignore the climate crisis, obviously, it also ignores the supply chain problem. We, in the, we have tripled, haven't we, uh, in recent years, our gas production, our domestic gas production. So... And yet we still don't have enough gas. So, yeah, you tell me, uh, sort of obvious answer, but explain it. Why won't greenfield sites like the Pilliga gas development help us? Yeah, it will do nothing to solve the immediate crisis. It will do everything to make the climate crisis worse and worse. It then adds in a fourth crisis, which we haven't even got to, which you've just touched on, which is the water crisis. 
So we've had the LNP manage to leave the ALP with four crises. I haven't actually added really the water one in, but the idea of drilling into the New South Wales Great Artesian Basin, I mean, it's, it's criminally insane. If they get it wrong, there is no remedy. They screw that for, for the rest of time. And that's exactly what could happen. There is no way they can guarantee it won't happen. So the precautionary principle says you don't do it unless you're Madeline King. Now, what do I, I have a real issue with Madeline King and I haven't even met her. I haven't really read anything she's written. All I know is she seems to be calling that she is there to represent the fossil fuel and the mining industry of Australia. I think she's got it asked about, she needs to actually represent the people of Australia and regulate and work with the mining industry in the interests of Australia. And the idea that more fossil fuel production is in any way consistent with the climate emergency is just a totally flawed way of thinking. I mean, it sounds like she's buddies with Angus Taylor and she's acting like it. She needs to actually reassess her responsibility, as I would put it, her responsibility is to the 25 million Australians and holding the resources industry to account and then making sure that they are investing in new projects refining of our resources before we export them and value adding to regional Australia and helping the transition so that she's actually working for the 25 million Australians that voted on a change of government to deal with the climate emergency. So yes, the Pilliga is just a flawed concept. It's Santos CEO yet again banging his drum. Yeah, I'll pay a little bit of super tax if I get to actually destroy the Pilliga forest and the artesian uh, water reserves. That's just, it's just wrong. And at the end of the day, what I've sort of, I've, I've suggested, maybe we need to accept that there will be some little bit of infill drilling somewhere on the East Coast. At the end of the day, the gas companies have contracted out. They have taken all of our domestic gas and are, are exporting most of it. At the end of the day, can we just pull that and break contracts? Probably not. So let's do maybe a little bit of infill drilling, but let's do some drilling where there's actually gas pipelines. Let's not create 50-year pipelines for a one-year solution. It's just a ludicrous suggestion. And somehow the ALP has said, oh, no, no, we want to be pro-industry. This isn't pro-industry. This is destroying our water table, and it is destroying our environment and actually giving us an unlivable planet. It's just wrong on every possible um, aspect. Tim, that, that, that was all really comprehensive. And, you know, I was going to actually have to ask you, uh, why is it that we can't just take some of the gas we produce and keep it here? You explained that when you spoke about contracts that can't be broken. And right at the start of this conversation, you spoke about Western Australia doesn't have the problem because they do have gas reserves. I believe 15%, isn't it, of everything they produce must be uh, kept for the state, for the people of the state. Uh, we didn't negotiate something like that, and it sounds like it's too different, too difficult to do so retrospectively. So... Uh, Gosh, look, I'd love to plug into your brain. I think we just need to plug your brain into our podcast for the next month, go to Hawaii, sit on a beach like Scott Morrison, do nothing. Uh, but Tim, thank you so much for speaking to the Green Canary. Uh, can't thank you enough. My pleasure. Happy to do it again. Cheers. Yes, so there he was, Tim Buckley, Director of Climate Energy Finance. And uh, I just, I just love it. You don't expect a bloke with it, with it, with a job title like director, climate, energy, finance, to use words like mafia three times that he did in that interview, <laughs> and to, 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 to use phrases like game 
to buggery and screwing <laughs> everyone on the east coast of Australia and talking about bloody big sticks rather than regulatory mechanisms or something like that. What do you think, Elfie? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He was definitely using fighting language, but I thought it was such a fantastic interview, And Thank you so much for bringing that to us this week. I think that, you know, it's really easy to get bogged down in the jargon and the rhetoric around the energy crisis, and it can be so boring for the average person to learn about. Like, let's be honest, it's really dry. But ultimately, when you hear an interview like that, it really makes you reflect on government mismanagement. It makes you reflect on the way that corporations have just been allowed to rot the Australian market, not pay taxes and, you know, leave the domestic market wanting. So, yeah, I think there's a reason for us to be really angry about this. And Tim's words there really remind us of that fact. Yeah, yeah, they do. I mean, we don't want gas, really, ultimately, as as part of uh, our energy mix. As as he said, the whole natural gas, gas thing, quote unquote, is a, is a furphy. Nothing natural about it at all. But but, but we certainly could have used some last week and we certainly do need it in the transition before we're up and running fully with renewables. Mm. Gas should be part of our energy transition and this whole mess was caused by not enough of it, uh, partly because of corporate greed, partly because of government mismanagement. Anyway, let's move on, Elfie. Let's move on to mulch our little snippets of bits and pieces. And I think that interview was long enough, so let's just hit me with one mulch. I think it was the worms, wasn't it? What you, tell me about these worms. <laughs> So excited about the worms, Love Ed. The worms. Um, I'm going to bring you a sound first. We're not going to start with a story. We're going to start with a sound. All right. Morgan, producer, hit me with this sound, please. Are you hearing that ASMR crunching right now? I hope everybody can hear that. It sounds like a thousand tiny toddlers eating apples like half a wow. mile away. Elfie, that is beautiful. Um, <laughs> but, but they were worms. They were worms eating polystyrene. Oh, but wait. Surely a uh, product like polystyrene is not fit for consumption by any living organism. Well, apparently it is. So at this university in Queensland, researchers have found that these worms, which are actually technically beetle larvae, we should point out, they're not actually worms, but we're going to call them worms because they're wormy looking things, and they can survive purely on polystyrene. And the researchers are saying that that says a lot about their ability to break down and process plastics in their gut. And look, it's not as good for them as, say, like eating actual food is, apparently. But they can get to adulthood on this polystyrene. And now the researchers are saying that the interesting part will be figuring out how the enzymes that these that these worms are using to break down the polystyrene could possibly be used on an industrial scale to break down plastics in the future. You won't be seeing worms in giant piles of plastic, but you might be seeing their enzymes, potentially. I can see uh, the potential for this research to do good in the world, to break down polystyrene. Well done, University of Queensland, uh, to this point anyway. But, you know, part of me worries. I've seen too many sci-fi movies. I've You know, for, as a child, I, I devoured quite a lot of this stuff. Day of the Triffids onwards, you know. I mean, hey, Triffids human eating plants you know <laughs> oh we'll just keep a few in a greenhouse what's the worst that can happen oh they'll eat everyone in the world this so, is gonna, this is the start of the science fiction movie i'm just worried about the polystyrene worms but but um, I, I remain optimistic we we like to think of ourselves as an upbeat podcast let's give them the benefit <laughs> 
<laughs> they probably won't eat us. Maybe. All right. Well, that is all we have time for on the show today. Thank you so much for joining us. Before we head off, as always, we would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we're recording, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We'd like to pay our respect to elders past and present and acknowledge that this land was stolen, never ceded. Thank you, Elfie. And uh, I'd just like to tell you all that you really, really should subscribe to our newsletter. Just go hello at thegreencanary.co and a magical newsletter will materialise in your inbox. Comes out every Wednesday. You should also say hello to us on Twitter where we are at Green Canary Pod and we're at Green Canary Media on Instagram. We are very, very social by nature. We know you are too. And we'd love you to be part of our convo. Yeah. And we'd love you to be here next week too. (laughs) All right. Well, in the meantime, we will see you online, but we'll see you for the podcast next week. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye.